Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. We're in a series called The Crown. We're studying the three kings, and we are 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I decided to make this my text today. Here we are, verse 7. Paul speaking to Timothy. We talked about Timothy earlier. Paul is just a matter of weeks, maybe months, but probably not. Probably weeks, they believe, away from being murdered. And he knows he's close to his death. The trials have happened. The Romans are not happy. The Christians are being persecuted. Paul is a big thorn in the side to the devil. And his time is short. He's okay with that. Because he knows his life was always in God's hands. When he got converted, he got converted and God said, by the way, Paul, on the day of his conversion, by the way, Paul, you're going to suffer for me. Oh, we don't often say that. When, you know, when I ask people to invite Jesus into their life, I don't say and suffer for him. But sometimes there are difficult days ahead. And it was for Paul. And when he wrote this letter, he's closing it off. He knows this will be the last letter out to his best friend, the one he has mentored, Timothy. Here it is. Paul says, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Don't you wish? I've, I've seen that on tombstones. Not bad. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Would you, everybody say that together? Can we say that with one voice, everybody? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Everybody together, come on. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. There's the crown. Is that in store? Is that in store? Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, praise God, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Hmm? I got my hand up. All those who have longed for his appearing. The phrase there, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. That word crown, there's two Greek words used to use the word what we have crown. It's one in English, two in Greek. The one word in Greek in the New Testament is diadem. One of the hymns talks about the diadem. That's one of the words with an A, diadema. The crown of a king or ruler. That's what it means. Spoken through the book of Revelation when Jesus talked to the crown almost every time in the book of Revelation. That's the word used, the Greek word diadema. The second word in the New Testament is uh, stephanos. It means to put around. That's the second word, crown, in Greek, stephanos. As in the case of a wreath that's made for an Olympic athlete. So the athlete, back then they didn't wear the belt. They put a crown and it was like a reef placed on their head. It was also placed on the head of some soldiers when they came back from a victorious war. They would place on the soldier's head a wreath. It was called a crown. It was called Stephanus. So diadem, Stephanus, the two words. And the word that Paul is making reference, when we do the study of the crown, both of the words are applied. The words are a royal crown, but a crown of victory. A wreath, the crown of victory. Father in heaven, as we talk this morning of the crown, God, I pray that you would help us to understand how this relates to us. Help it to come home. 
home to where we live and how we ought to live, we pray. In your precious name, amen. Today I want to talk about trouble at home. And I apologize straight up front because it's going to be a little anxious-filled. Whenever there's trouble at home, there's a bit of anxiety comes with that. Uh, police officers will say over and over again, the worst call are not to shootings, are not to murder scenes, are not to bank robberies. The worst calls they get are to domestic disputes. When a dispute is taking place inside someone's home, because they're never uglier and they're absolutely unpredictable. And so they typically don't show up single-handedly. They bring like, you know, the whole street fills up with police cars <laughs> because they are so unpredictable. They just dread going into troubled homes. There's nothing more vicious than in a troubled home. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than in troubled homes. And I'm just going to say it. All of our homes at times have trouble. No home is perfect. If you have a perfect home, please see me. I'd like to know what you've got going, that your home is absolutely perfect. And I probably would want to talk to your husband and wife and your children just to make sure that it really is perfect. right? Because the reality is, homes have trouble. Nothing wrong with a bit of trouble at home. It's what we do with the trouble, how we live through the trouble. And some trouble's unavoidable. You can do virtually, and I say you, nobody's perfect, so you'll never do everything right, but everything to the best of your absolute ability, and you still can have trouble at home. I want to talk about trouble at home because this touches, I think, all of us. We're looking at David. We're looking at the crown. So we pick the story up here uh, in reference to David has some trouble going on at home. We're going to look to that. Now, there's two types of trouble in the home. There's trouble that comes from without, and there's trouble that comes from within. Trouble that comes from without actually is healthy for most homes. Uh, it could be a layoff. It could be, um, you know, you're camping and your trailer breaks down in the mountains or your vehicle blows an engine while you're out in Algonquin Park or, you know. They can actually create, if the family, if it happens from outside in, it can actually create what psychologists tells us a close-knit family. You begin to look out for each other to deal with that external problem. You can actually be drawn closer together. You learn teamwork. Now, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you turn on each other. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault if you hadn't. And, you know, if you hadn't, you know, if you'd done that tune-up, the car wouldn't have broke down. Or if you had just applied for another job, you wouldn't have been laid off. And we, we can turn inward. That's an inward again. But often external things can't bust up a family. It's the internal ones. They're the ones that break the family. They come from within. Troubles from within. Bring pressure, sleepless nights, tension. You say something and you get an explosion. And you're scratching your head going, how did I get an explosion from that? The, 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 the result coming back was so negative. Because the tension now puts everybody on edge, we don't trust each other. 
So things said are misinterpreted constantly when there's high tension. Neglect. So we deal with tension either fight or flight. Which are you? Do you want to get into a fight and you go nose to nose, you just want to tackle it? Or do you just, ah, no, walk away, neglect, ignore it, passive, apathy, fight or flight? Both of those have problems in them, all right? Um, bitterness, hatred, I hate you. I wish I had never. Um, abuses, unforgiveness, all of this accompanies carnality in homes. There's a principle found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. It's a fundamental principle. It goes like this. Do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. It's a basic principle of, of the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest is what you sow, you will reap. If I sow corn, I'm not going to reap beans. I'll reap corn. If I sow beans, I won't reap corn. You reap what you sow, and you reap in proportion to what you sow. We often use that when it comes time for giving, but it's true with everything. And so when it comes to our homes, it is likewise true. I come back to it. It says, do not be deceived. In other words, don't let anyone tell you the difference. That whatever you sow, you will reap. It's the law of the harvest. You can't change that law. This includes God's grace, but you can know that if you reap certain things, even though you're forgiven, even though God's grace is over that, there are still consequences. Sometimes we want the consequences stopped. We've reaped bad, and we want the consequences stopped, and occasionally that might happen. Most often, the consequences are lagging behind. They will come, consequences of what we do in life. The one who sows to his own flesh shall reap Corruption. Uh, so David, we pick it up. King David, he's about 50 years old in our study today. So we've moved him ahead. He's 50 years old approximately. He's been on the throne now about 20 years where we pick up the story. David has distinguished himself above all the leaders. But David was human and he was making some unwise slash sinful decisions. And some of the decisions had to do with his family. We talked last week, he made a decision of counting his army when God had explicitly told him, don't do it. And he did, and people died. Okay, that wasn't a wise decision at all. And then he had some unwise decisions. Last week we talked about his family. We asked how many kids he had. We know he has over 21 kids, 20 sons, one daughter, are named by name. And then he had a bunch more through concubines. These were people that were part of the household. They brought them in. And uh, so there's a pile of ch children. It's not all from one wife. He has multiple wives. That was a the problem there too. So yes, there's a number of blights in David's decision-making. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, says this. I want you to follow this. Deuteronomy 17, 16 says, it, it gives what kings are to and not to do. This is the law. God gave this law. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not 
take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Three things spoken here. Did you pick them up? Number one, the king must not acquire a great number of horses for himself. Okay, it's not a, horses. Okay, so you're saying, well, I'm pretty good on that. I don't have any horses. Okay, this is about opulence. It's about accumulating things. How many homes? How many this and that? How many, you got a string of vehicles lined up. Have you got, you know, a mass amount in a savings account that you really you could use it for kingdom purpose? It's about accumulation of things. King's not to do that. In this moment, it was horses. Secondly, God says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And the last one, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now, David was pretty good on number one and number three. <laughs> he did okay. Number one, he didn't multiply a pile of horses. His son, we'll get to him, he had a problem here. But David was okay. And number three, he didn't accumulate a lot of silver and gold. That wasn't an issue with David. His son had a problem, but not David. But he had a problem with number two. And where David had a problem with number two, yeah, his son had big problems with number two. We're going to get to him one day. But David's the guy today. Now, I want to share eight downward steps that spell trouble in David's home. First of all, marital infidelity. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Joab's the commander of the army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Ribah. David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Oops. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of the Uriah, the Hittite. Note that part, the wife of... Did you notice he didn't... The person coming back didn't have to state that little part. They did it for David's benefit, David. She is the wife of... And this guy was one of David's mighty men in the army. Uriah, the Hittite, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him... And he slept with her. You got to love scriptures. They don't keep things hidden from us. David, in all his great success, who wrote some pretty amazing songs, who took down Goliath, who was the chief of musicians, great warrior, David. David. Come on, David. In his success, he became vulnerable. It started off in that text, did you note the part, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, he should have been leading his army. But he wasn't. He's in bed. just want to pause frame for a second. Some of our greatest battles... Don't come when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. When you're busy doing work, the tasks that are yours to do, instead of 
stroking yourself with a little extra leisure. He had, he made for himself, I mean, he's king, right? He made for himself some extra leisure. When he should have been out to battle, he's in bed lounging. Verse 2 says, He saw from his time of lounging a woman bathing. She was very beautiful. Now, when the Bible ever puts the word very in front of something, it means she wasn't just gorgeous. She was drop-dead gorgeous, right? A very means she was like a model, beautiful. They don't put those words there. So it's, very is seldom put in Scripture. And when it does, you pay attention. So, I mean, she, he, David was duly tempted here. She was very beautiful. Now, when it comes time to temptation, when is it a temptation and when is it a sin? You've worked through that one. I know. Uh, I probably, I'm going to hazard a guess all of us or most of us would get the answer, right answer to that question. When is it a temptation? When does temptation turn to sin? Uh, I, remember, I, I remember when I first was asking my mom and dad that question. You know, um, okay, did I sin there or was I just tempted? How many times can I do that and still be called temptation before I actually miss it and then God's mad at me, right? And, you know, I was trying to work that out, you know. I was negotiating temptation to sin. And I think the basic answer is temptation, there are things that you will see or be exposed to. And in that moment, it's temptation. But when you pause to give second thought to it, you move out of temptation into sin. Sin does not begin when you do it. Sin begins when you contemplate doing it. Long before David was sacked up with that very beautiful woman, he was already sinning. Sin starts between your ears. It doesn't simply start at the moment the act takes place. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus changes the perimeters well, you know, you murder somebody when, the, when that person's dead. No, no. If in your heart you're, you're wishing their death, Jesus says, now you've committed murder. That, at that moment, you've sinned and you need to repent and turn away. When you sin in the Old Testament, when you actually committed the act of sin with that person, adultery, Jesus, whoa, 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 New Testament, no. When you are formulating it in your mind, that now is sin. You need to repent turn away and ask for forgiveness. So in this situation, when was it the moment between temptation and the moment, first of all, he shouldn't have been lounging on the roof when he needed to be off to war. He set himself up. He was moving into dangerous waters. But when was the moment where he moved into sinning? Well, it was when you don't run. You, you know, many sins, it tells us to do certain things, but when it comes to the sin of fornication or adultery, there's one text that says you need to flee from it. Certain sins you can resist, you can push back. There are others you need to run like a mad person from it. Get as far away as possible. Shut it down. Put accountability. Put things in place. Do it now. Quickly. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Now. Because if you don't, you're already too far into dangerous waters. David needed to run and flee when he saw it. Get out of there, David. 
Get that horse saddled up and get out to the front line of the battle where the king ought to be in the first place. But he didn't. Stolen waters. Proverbs 9, 17. Stolen waters are sweet. Stolen waters are sweet. Both David and Bathsheba, I believe, took pleasure in that stolen moment. You have no indication there was resistance. I mean, she's drop-dead gorgeous, but he's pretty good too. Bible talks, he was handsome and ruddy. He was a good-looking king. And he was the king after all. Like, there is no bigger prize to be noticed and flattered by the king noticed you. And you're kind of lonely because your husband's been gone for some time and all the circumstances of the storm the devil has put in place. Devil didn't make him do it, though. He just put the circumstances in place. And so he's charming, she's beautiful, she's flattered. But no, sin's pleasures do pass. In fact, in a matter of weeks from that moment of pleasure, she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. I want to make some observations here. It's been my observation that the devil never tips his hand when you're in the season of temptation. Let me explain this. The devil will only show you beauty. He will show you ecstasy. He will show you this is going to be fun. He will show you the excitement that you're going to experience. He will show you the stimulation of the adventure of stolen desires. That's what he shows you. Beauty, ecstasy, fun, excitement, stimulation, adventure. The devil never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there's sickness and a broken family. He never tells the heavy drinker that. My observation is the devil never tells the marijuana or the cannabis user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end trap for you. He doesn't do that. And he certainly doesn't tell the thief, you're going to get caught and your whole life will be marred from that moment on. He doesn't tell the thief that. And he doesn't tell the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility here. Or you might get a life-threatening disease or this will destroy your family and will impair your kids and your kids' kids. What you're about to do will impair the generations to follow. You notice that? Is that a fair observation? The devil never tips the hand in the points of temptation. He just fills you with beauty, ecstasy, fun, excitement, stimulation, and adventure. Stolen waters. Sweet. In the moment. And yet the devil smiles as you fall. And leaves you with no encouragement when the consequences, remember, what you sow you will reap. It flows and it happens. It's a law. You can't change it. Can't change it. The depth of temptation. So what does David do? Well, he just gets deeper. What should he have done? 
right at the tail end of it, he should have repented. He should have called on the Lord. He doesn't. He tries to cover up his sin. I mean, he should have come good. He should have repented. He should have asked forgiveness. But he moves into cover-up mode. Oh, why we do that. Then David puts into action a scheme to get the husband back home. Surely if Uriah gets home and, and this can all look like this is his child. Up until that, I mean, if she wasn't pregnant, David wouldn't have done anything. But she is pregnant. She is going to bring a baby in to this world. And so he calls Uriah back home. Uriah comes home. But Uriah is a man of integrity and would not compromise because his place was in the battlefield. He was a commander of his of his army, and his men potentially could die the nights that he was going to be home. He would not go home to his wife. He would remain separate because his heart was with his men in the front lines. So he didn't go home to his wife. Shoot, that didn't work in David's mind. So his plan deepens. Sin tends to do this. David puts in motion, talks to the commander, Joab, Brought Uriah home that he would be with his wife, but he's not with his wife, so send Uriah back to the front line. That didn't work. No, no, send him to the front of the front line. And when he's at the front of the front line, go into battle, then push back and leave him by himself. He'll die. David! <laughs> he's my man. David, what are you doing? It's exactly what he does. Even Joab challenges, you sure you want to do this? Yes, He's cover, David's in cover-up mode. So they put Uriah at the front of the army. They pull back. Uriah's life is taken. He dies. Honorable death for Uriah. Oh, for David. David, David, David. And the end of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel closes with these words. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. So days would go by, weeks would go by, months would go by. It looks like everything's gone back to normal. Whew, David, you got out of this one. God would wait months. God would wait months. Remember our text, do not deceive. God is not mocked for whatever a man or woman sows. He will, you will reap it. It's coming. It's coming. Months goes by, and it looks like there's no ramifications to this. Even though the sin is not brought to the forefront, it is still evil in the eyes of God. The day after, the week after, the month after, ten months after, it's still evil. It's never changed. God has not changed his mind. Let me suggest 3,000 years after, today, God still hasn't changed his mind. doesn't matter how much time goes by. doesn't matter if other people are doing it around me doesn't matter if the friends are and the neighbors and family members, brothers, sisters, if your dad did it, your mom did it. doesn't matter. It is still sin in the eyes of God. doesn't matter the length of time. Time is not. God's outside time. It's as if it's just happening. So time would go by. Lest you think David's off the hook in those days. Let me take you to something here. David wrote Psalms 32, the early part. And he reflects in these days between that moment, the cover-up, and where Nathan finally points his bony old prophet finger in David's face and says, you're the man. You have sinned. You need to get right with God. Psalms 32, verse 1. Follow along with me. It says this. Blessed is the one. David writing this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, 
whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in whose spirit is no deceit. In other words, he's not trying to cover up. Now note verse 3. Because, David says, when I kept silent, week after week, month after month, my bones wasted away. Through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now, David, was you're not off the hook, David. You're not off the hook. That's called the spirit of the living God at work. You're not off the hook. It's the consequences of sin. And not only does David commit sin, but now as we continue to flow into David's story, you see uh, David's Remember we talk, it just doesn't affect you, it affects the next generation. It affects the next generation. Let's pick it up, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21. Anthophel answered, sleep with your father. He's talking to one of David's sons here. Sleep with your dad's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom. Absalom is David's son. On the roof, does that sound familiar? And he slept with David's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Remember where David first fell into that sin? It was on a roof. Coincidence? I think not. Family, marital, infidelity. I'm going to go through the rest of the troubles of the home much more quickly because this is heavy. Secondly, David loses a child. Second trouble. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 18. On the seventh day... The child dies. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, David wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. They thought David would kill himself. The grief was tremendous for David to bear the loss and death of a child. Third trouble. One of David's sons rapes his sister. This home's got some troubles. So we pick it up, 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 12. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Down to verse 14. But he refused, her brother, he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. 15. Then Amnon, the one who raped her, hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And when King David heard of this, he was furious. But not once does it ever demonstrate he did anything to remedy the problem. He didn't work to fix it. The fourth problem at the home Brother now hates brother. Okay, well, this is going to happen. Lust has led to rape. Rape now has led to hatred. And hatred is manifesting itself in absolute bitterness. Amnon was the rapist. He had raped Tamar. He was a half-brother of Tamar. But her full brother, whose name is Absalom, Absalom 
was the one she ran to when all this took place. And Absalom wanted to know, where's dad? Where's dad when all this is taking place in the palace? Where's dad? Well, dad's being passive is what he is. This home was, I'm going to suggest, a bit of a nightmare to live in, don't you think? Absalom, full brother of Tamar, uh, Tamar, who had been defiled by her brother Amnon, would nurture this week after week, month after month. This just continues. This continues to boil in his heart to the place where it boils over, and he knows Dad is not doing anything about it. He must take it into his own hands if any justice is to come out of this. Fifth problem in the home. Brother murders brother. Now, let's face it, if David was on top of things in the home, he would have known all this stuff was happening. But David's children are manipulating their dad. 2 Samuel chapter 13, 28. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, kill him. Don't be afraid. I have given this order. Be strong, be brave. Verse 29, so Absalom's men did to Ammon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled like no tomorrow. There is murder in the palace. Verse 30, while they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left alive. My goodness, this is a mess. This is turning into an absolute mess. Now, it wasn't actually true. The other sons were not struck down. That was just the report David got initially. But you think that's where it stops? Oh, my goodness. Number six, rebellion. Absalom goes to a place called Gershur. Now, remember, that's where his grandpa lived. So he's gone to grandpa's place, his mom's dad. And there he plans a revolt. So a revolt is planning in the house of the king. Next, Absalom leads a conspiracy against his father. So not only has he had his brother killed who raped his sister, but now he is planning to take out his dad. So Absalom conspires against his father. 2 Samuel chapter 14, 28. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem. He came back to Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Now that's a problem. That's a problem. He came back to Jerusalem, but David wouldn't bring him into the palace to see. Through a chain of events, Absalom worms his way, and the Bible talks of it in detail. I won't share the details, but Absalom worms his way right to the king's doorstep and begins to steal the hearts of the people of the kingdom. He says bad things about his dad to the people. All of the things he said is false, but the people believe him. He over-exaggerates, and before long, He's got the majority vote. And all these things, and because of them, David abdicates the throne. He walks away. We pick it up in 2 Samuel, verse 15. So here's the crown, the king, the great king, great king David. 2 Samuel 15, 14. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And so he took off out of the city. He took his 
Immediate men and out they ran. And then the final step of devastation. And remember trouble in David's home. Number eight. Joab's number one commander. Or David's one number one commander, Joab, murders Absalom. This fulfills the prophecy from the prophet Nathan when he confronted David after, wind it back, wind it back, Bathsheba. Nathan spoke to David and said, he quote, said, the word will not depart from your house. Or the sword, the sword will not depart from your house. And David saw it over and over and over again. I'm sure David regretted the day that he did not exercise restraint. The day he did not fall before God and repent immediately. And finally, in the backwash of rape, conspiracy, rebellion, hatred, murder, David is alone in the palace. Absolute exhaustion. In comes a runner bearing bad news. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 32. So David asked the Cushite, is the young man, is my son Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, here's the reply, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. Which is another way of saying, your boy is dead. Now, feel with verse 33, 2 Samuel 18, 33. Feel with this. The king was shaken. He went to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he was heard to say, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. And then again, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. Do you feel with it? You got to feel with it, that verse. David's a beaten man. The harvest of sin is more than anyone can bear. The devil never tells us that at the front, though, does he? The good news, the good news, though, the good news is David turns to the Lord and confesses. A little late, a lot of destruction, but God's grace, God's mercy is in this story. I pause here before I get to the good news, and we're just going to close. It's because there's trouble in homes, Hopefully not to the depth of this. <laughs> this is kind of ugly. But where there has been stuff, where home is not good, where there's been death, where there has been betrayal, there's been rebellion, I think probably all our homes in some ways are affected in some ways. And trouble in the homes. Yes, it is life. But I want to suggest that there's not a get-out-of-jail-free pass on this. Your bones will eat away. The hand of God is heavy upon you. Your soul will convict you. It will rob God's destiny for you. And today, whatever those troubles might be, whether you inflicted them or they've been inflicted on you, there's still trouble. Today, before we walk out these doors, why don't we just have some real time with God? knowing that he is the forgiver of all things. And maybe this is a Nathan moment for some. Maybe this is just, again, a reiteration. God, I need to be free from these things. God, I need healing from my home situation. And I'm not saying there won't be consequences that will trail this. 
But I am saying that God will set you in a place that there will also be blessing. And the blessing will by far compensate for the things that are going to follow because of consequences. Maybe today, maybe today is the day that you find freedom from some home situations. Okay? Could be God's moment for you and your moment today. I'm believing that. I'm believing as we look at the crown that this story in all these multifaceted details, it's about us today. So let me go to the good news. The good news is David does cry to the Lord. Psalms 51 verse 2. You read of it. David cries, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Can't you just see that? Scrub, scrub, scrub. Wash it away. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Wash it away. Lord, wash. Wash it away from me. Down to verse 4. Again, you God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, when we always think it's just them, it's them. But there's something happens when we begin to say, God, I've sinned against you. That's worse than any person. God, I've sinned against you. All that you've done for me, I've sinned against you. And when that gravity sinks in, oh God, forgive me, I have sinned against you. Then we can move to be able to find forgiveness and healing with others. But if we just think it's all, you know, horizontal, we've missed it. Because we have sinned against the Lord. As you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And so we've done this. I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. But here's the place, beloved. As David would now at the age of 50, he would live for a number more years. You need to ride out the storm. Ride out the storm. It's a learning experience. Move on. Walk in forgiveness. If we were here today, I would, Cleansing Stream Ministry, we would take a bowl of water and we would, God, I now wash the shame off my face. And with the same, I place it over my heart that, God, you would cleanse my heart and make it new. And he does. Wash my face and cleanse my heart. Earlier I mentioned Psalms 32. Psalms 32 was written in the pain of the depth of pain in David's life. I'm going to go back to Psalms 32, read it again. Where David, I'm going to read the last three verses, or the last two verses. Psalms 32, verse 3. David says, because when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Remember, we read that one earlier. That was David saying, I, I, didn't get, I wasn't free in this. That was the weight of sin. But if you go to the end, verse 8, Psalms 32, verse 8. Oh, I love this part. I've got this one marked in my Bible, underlined multiple times. Verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way. You don't know where to go? I will instruct you and teach you. I will counsel you, note this, with my loving eye on you. You've not fallen for my grace. Verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. In other words, don't make it about having to be forced. Verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked. Hmm, we've just seen that. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. 
Praise God. Ah, oh, I, I, we can underline that one. The Lord's unfailing never fails. Great is thy faithfulness. We sang over and over that. Great is unfailing. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one whose trust is in him. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.